Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. During this season, I have decided, rather I should say the Holy Spirit has decided, and I've been compliant in nesting a series within a series. We've been looking at the book of Romans for a long time now, and there's great comfort in the book of Romans, even in chapter 11, where we left off. God has words of comfort. And yet during this season, he is calling us to the Psalter, to the book of Psalms. We looked at Psalm 13 last week, and this morning we turn to the beginning of the book of Psalms, to Psalm chapter 1. And then next week we'll look at Psalm chapter 2 because these two psalms go together. They introduce all of the themes that the Psalter unpacks. And so understanding these two psalms orients us for the rest. So hear the word of the Lord. This is Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. But the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to illuminate this psalm to us. We pray that you would reveal to us your wisdom in these words. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. We are ready for this trial to be over. It's been going on for weeks now, and before it started, a few weeks of privation probably didn't seem like a lot. But now that we've endured it, we are ready for it to be done. We're ready to get back to normal. Admittedly, at the beginning, most of us were worried that we were overreacting. Now, as we watch the news, we begin to worry that we weren't overreacting and that there may be serious times ahead. But the one thing that we can all agree on is that we're ready for this to be done. We're ready to have our lives back, but not so fast. Because maybe we shouldn't want our old lives back, at least not all of them. Maybe we need to think about what it is that we want when all this is over. Maybe we need to ask the question, what kind of life do I want to live when everything is back to normal? If that's the question you ask yourself, I think the psalmist in Psalm 1 has answers, has a way of thinking about the life that we want to live. It's the life of blessing, the blessed life that Psalm 1 speaks of, 
The blessed life is the one that you want, but only the righteous receive it. The blessed life is the life you want, but only the righteous receive it. As we read this text, there are two kinds of life that are offered. And and you see them actually in the first and the last words of the psalm. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. Blessing, the life of blessedness. Now that's archaic in English. If you were going to translate these ancient Hebrew words into modern English, you wouldn't say blessed is the man because we just don't talk that way. We don't even say blessed unless we're being spiritual. The way we say that word is blessed, blessed. So the man is blessed would be a much more natural way to say that. But the reason it's translated this way is to preserve that word order because it's intentional. Because the psalmist intentionally begins not only Psalm 1, but the entire book of Psalms with the word blessed. And then in contrast, at the other end of the psalm, if you go all the way down to verse 6, the final word, what do you find there? Perish. Perish. Those are the two kinds of life. The life of blessedness or the life of perishing. And those are also the two themes that you will find throughout the book of Psalms woven together, blessing and perishing, blessing and perishing, life and death. Two paths, two ways to live. The blessed life is the life you want to live, but that is a life that is achieved through the pursuit of righteousness. The pursuit of wickedness Ungodliness, on the other hand, that leads to perishing. That is the final word of Psalm chapter 1. We can live to perish or we can live to be blessed. So what I want to talk to you about is the path of righteousness, the righteous way that leads to blessing, the kind of life that we ought to want to live, the kind of life that we want back. That's the life that this psalm speaks to. The righteous way, if you want to understand it in a nutshell, it's as simple as this. The righteous way is not spite, but delight. Not spite, but delight. In verse 1, you see all of the things that the righteous person has to give up. All of the places the righteous person cannot go. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. There are three parallels here. Three parallels, the walking and the standing and the sitting. But those three phrases are meant to say essentially the same thing. The parallelism is repeating the same idea in slightly different ways in order to emphasize what it is that the righteous person distances himself from, what he turns his back on. The righteous reject the wisdom of man. The righteous reject the way of life that seems right to those who despise God. That's what the righteous give up. They don't live the way the rest of the world lives. They don't follow the the counsel, the wisdom of the rest of the world. They've turned their back on it. They don't assemble and congregate where the rest of the world congregates. 
they avoid those places because they do something else instead. They do something else instead. We've talked before about the impossibility of maintaining a negative. If your idea of the Christian life is just a series of don'ts, if you think the way to please God is by not doing things, the difficulty is nature abhors a vacuum. You're going to do something. The, the point is not to, to empty your mind, but to fill it. Not to empty your life, but to fill it. And the question is, fill it with what? And the answer is with delight. Here's what the righteous do instead. In verse 2, we're given the positive case. The righteous delight in God's law, in God's Torah, in his instruction, in his way of seeing the world and ordering the world. The way God interprets reality, that's what the righteous delight in. And not only delight in it, but meditate on it continually. Think about it, contemplate it, uh, take pleasure in it, in every aspect of it. They delight in God's way. So it's not just that the righteous reject man's wisdom. It's also that the righteous delight in God's wisdom. They see the world and themselves as God sees them. And they live according to that vision. I've said before that one of the appeals of the Psalms is that the Psalms are a place that we can turn to when we need comfort. Which is true, the Psalms are a source of comfort. But they're also a source of more than that. They're a source of wisdom. In fact, the Psalms, whether you realize it or not, the Psalms are part of wisdom literature in scripture. So Psalms are not just poems. They're poems with a didactic purpose. They're meant to teach us, to instruct us in wisdom. We turn to them for comfort, but they also teach us how we ought to live. As much as we need comfort right now, I think we need wisdom just as much, if not more. And there is a wisdom that this Psalm teaches us give up spite and embrace delight, live differently. Delight in the things of God, turn away from the life of spite that characterizes the rest of the world. The Psalm gives us a metaphor for understanding the difference, the metaphor of the tree that is rooted, which is the righteous versus chaff which is the unrighteous, the wicked, the ungodly. When you delight in God's way, when you live according to his wisdom, you start living the way that you as a human being were meant to live. This is the way you were made to live. And as a result, you are rooted in reality. You are like the tree whose roots are sunk deep. And not only that, But because you are seeing the world for what it is, for what God made it to be, you are producing organically the fruit of the spirits that human beings were made to produce when they live according to God's way. We grow and we prosper like that rooted tree when we delight in God's way. The contrast For those who reject God's wisdom, there can be no rootedness. There can be no connection to that deep reality of creation because you've rejected the one who made all things. So the psalmist compares 
the wicked, those who reject God's way, to chaff, um, tumbleweed that is blown back and forth by the wind. It reminds me of a quote from George Orwell in his essay, Inside the Whale, which is a fascinating essay. He has this kind of a, a, a jibe, uh, a, a little sharp remark that he makes at the expense of communism. So I apologize in advance for any communists who are listening and will be offended by these words of George Orwell. But, but in, in describing communism, he wrote, every communist is in fact liable at any moment to have to alter his most fundamental convictions or leave the party. The unquestionable dogma of Monday may become the damnable heresy of Tuesday, and so on. In other words, whatever you fervently believe today, you might have to believe the opposite of it tomorrow in order to stay in the good graces of your culture, of your authority. And and that's the problem with it, that there's no consistency. There's no continuity over time. It's not rooted. It's blown around this way and that way by the demands of, of the day. Now, what Orwell says about communism, I think, can be fairly said about man's wisdom in general. You are surrounded by people who live according to man's wisdom, and one of the consequences of that is they no longer believe what they used to believe. Not only that, they are adamantly opposed to what they used to consider good. Why? It's simple, because the wind blew. And when the wind blows, the chaff moves. It is blown. It is not rooted. That's the difference between the righteous and the unrighteous. One is rooted. One is connected to reality, is timeless in a way that the other cannot be. The metaphor is chaff, but the reality for those who reject God is, is more than just chaff. It's more than a metaphor. The wicked do not stand in the judgment. In verses 5 and 6, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It's interesting at the beginning of the psalm in verse 1, it's the righteous who don't stand. But by the end of the psalm, the ones who don't stand are the wicked. And they don't stand in a much more important way. They don't stand in the congregation and the assembly of God's people on the day of judgment. They don't stand in the congregation of the righteous. In other words, they do not endure judgment, but are condemned. Simply because they are not standing in the right place and the congregation, and the assembly of the Lord. So, two ways. The way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. But behind every way, there's also a community. And this is what I want you to see. Interpreters make a lot of that progression of verbs from walking to standing to sitting. You've probably heard more than one sermon about the the, the way those words function is a kind of warning to us. You start off by walking with 
the wicked, then you're standing around with them, and then you're sitting with them in perfect comfort, absorbed into their community, so that Psalm 1 can be read as a warning to the righteous, which I think might actually be a misreading. I don't think this is a warning to the righteous. I think it's a warning to the wicked. It's a warning to those who will not stand because the way that they've taken leads to perishing. Instead of focusing on those verbs, what I would like you to think about is the the counsel, the way, and the seat. The counsel, the way, and the seat. The counsel that the righteous don't walk in, the way that they don't stand in, the seat that they don't sit in, because I want to emphasize the collective nature of those metaphors. Counsel is the received wisdom of a group. It's what makes sense to people. It's, it's common sense. Everybody knows this. This is what's right. This is the way to live. That's the counsel of the world that the righteous turn their backs on. The way is a collective way of living, a lifestyle, if you will. The, the way that the righteous don't stand in is a lifestyle that rejects God, a way of living that many people together embrace. The seat, if you go back and you look at the, the language, the kind of sitting that we're talking about here is similar to when we elect an official and they are seated in the assembly. Like there's an official quality taking your place at the table, that kind of sitting that's going on. It's not sitting alone in a chair off by yourself. It's being seated in the assembly, in the community. That's what the righteous do not do. To put it another way, the righteous give up community. The righteous distance themselves from the community of the wicked. That's what we sacrifice if we follow the way of the Lord. But of course, in making that sacrifice, we find another community. The righteous find a community where people delight in God's Torah, in God's way, where they meditate on his word. So there's a sacrifice But then there's also a a rediscovery, a new community that is built. Some of you know this more than others right now, but when you contain children in an enclosed environment, havoc results. You get a mess. Um, Lori and I see this from time to time when Lori babysits, and afterwards the house looks like a tornado ripped through it. And many is the time that I've walked into that chaos with toys strewn everywhere and and everything that I, I like to have in its place is suddenly out of its place. And I've sat down in the midst of all of that mess and I've said to myself, I can't wait till things get back to normal. But the reality is things don't get back to normal. You can sit there as long as you want waiting for things to get back to normal and nothing will change. Eventually, you have to put them back to normal. And sometimes when you're putting things back to normal, you don't put them back to the way they were. You actually improve things. You start moving around the furniture. You start making it better than it was before. 
as this pandemic subsides and as life gets back to normal, it's not just going to get back to normal. It's going to have to be rebuilt intentionally. We're going to have to rebuild to one extent or another. Our lives are going to have to be rebuilt. Our work will need rebuilding. Our communities will need rebuilding. The question is, what kind of communities will we rebuild? What will they be like? What I want to encourage you with the words of Psalm 1 in our thoughts, I want to encourage you, let's build a community of delight. Let's build a community, not of spite, not of rejection, not of rebellion, but a community that delights in God's way together. This is an opportunity to reset, right? We miss the communities that we had before. We can't wait to have them back. But maybe God has given you an opportunity to reset your life, to think about and be intentional about the communities that you're a part of and whether those communities are are living to perish or living to be blessed. It's an opportunity to reevaluate the kind of communities that we want to be a part of and contribute to and the kind of communities we want to maintain our distance from. In times like this, the usual wisdom people will give you is in moments of crisis, you find out who your friends are. In moments of crisis, you find out who your friends are because they're the ones who are there for you. When things are bad, the people who are there for you, that's your real community. That's what we tell ourselves, and it sounds really good. Unless you've read the book of Proverbs, and you find out that foolishness is always there for you. Foolishness is there for you and accepts you wherever you are. Compliments and flatters you. Foolishness is always near. It's wisdom that's hard. Wisdom that you have to strive for. Settling for the friends, for the community that's there for you can actually be a really passive way to order your existence. There's a better way. Psalm 1 points to it, a better way, but we have to strive for it. It's the righteous way. The intentional path is to distance yourself from the gathering of the ungodly, the sinners, the scornful. These are communities that by their very nature eat away at themselves, are as corrosive as acid. That scorn, that spite, that doubt will eat at you and change you. But I'm not just saying when all this is over, we need to be more intentional about separating ourselves from from that. I'm actually saying that's part of it, but there's a bigger part of it, which is to find our delight in God's ways. To find real delight, not just duty, but delight in the things of God so that we can meditate on the things of God so that the words of God become like smooth stones in our hands from so much rubbing as we know them backwards and forwards and love them and delight in them. The righteous way means finding the people who delight in God and delighting with them. And that's the community we need to rebuild. I don't want 
grace to go back to the way it was. I want us to rebuild in a way that delights even more in the ways of God. Of course, when you read Psalm 1, you have to remember there's a certain secret that believers are aware of. As we read about the righteous and the wicked, we start thinking about earlier in our service, our confession of sin. And you might ask yourself, well, which one of those am I? The body of Jesus Christ, the church, is called to righteousness. But the secret we know is that we're not righteous. That the promise of blessedness is not one that we could achieve by the quality of our delight. We have striven to delight in the ways of God, and even on our best days, we have fallen far short. There's only one who truly delights in the way of the Father, and that's the Son, Jesus. The blessed life is promised to us, but the blessed life is not a reward for our righteousness. It's a reward for his righteousness. We only taste it because we stand in the congregation of the righteous. We stand in the assembly of Jesus Christ, and Jesus gives his righteousness to all those who stand with him, to everybody in the building. He lavishes that grace upon us. He teaches us how to delight in the ways of God. Because our faith is in Jesus, because our community, our communion is with Christ. The righteous way has become our way, even though we have no business and our own strength walking it. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast. Thank you.